Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am our college teaching director for our Anderson campus. Uh, so maybe we've met, maybe we haven't. Normally, I'm over at our other campus on Sundays speaking to our college students. Uh, they're gone right now, and so I came here because I have to talk to someone. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, I'm just grateful, though, for this opportunity to be back. If I've, we've met before, you would know I've done, uh, I actually used to do youth ministry here at Southwood. I did it for two years. Uh, so coming back here feels a little bit like coming home. I know the secret handshake, so I'm cool. If you don't, then there is not a secret handshake. I don't know what that's all about. Wink, you know, but uh, I'm so excited to be here. So excited to be with you guys. Um, I'm really excited uh, for us to be talking a little bit about uh, Thanksgiving, man, the Thanksgiving season that we're just now exiting out of. And now we finally get to put up Christmas trees and not feel weird about it uh, because they're the best and whatever the poinsettias or something. But we're excited, man. We're, this is a great season. This is a good time uh, where we get to be thankful for things. And, and what I'm excited to do this morning is to take us back and look at a historical figure from our scripture, a guy named Solomon, and look at uh, what he was thankful for uh, to understand kind of a little bit about his life. Uh, we're going to look at kind of his rise and his reign and then his fall. And as we chart out, as we map out his life, we're going to understand uh, a little bit more uh, about the way that our Lord works, a, l- a little bit more about something that we could all uh, be thankful for. But before we go all the way back to King Solomon, we're going to turn our attention to something a little bit more recent, uh, Jacob Smith as a kindergartner. Okay, so Jacob Smith, that's me, uh, as a kindergartner, when I was in kindergarten, uh, I had a bitter rivalry with a girl named Amanda. Okay, Amanda and I, there was just something in our relationship that brought us uh, to a head just constantly. And I've, I've looked back and tried to understand I, as best I can guess it. I think a lot of that uh, dispute, a lot of that rivalry came from the fact that she was a girl um, and wouldn't change that about herself. And so because of that, uh, we had just a lot, and there were issues that rose up. And so this rivalry kind of came to a head one day when I was out on the playground and I looked at one of our slides and I saw Amanda at the top of the slide. And using my five-year-old logic, I understood that if she's at the top of the slide, that means she will eventually be at the bottom of the slide, which has now opened up myself to a perfect ambush situation. And so I grabbed a handful of rocks from the ground of our playground, and I placed them ever so gingerly at the bottom of the slide, right on the seat. And then I grabbed two more handfuls of rocks, and I lay and wait. Uh, preparing to spring my trap, when sure enough, Amanda goes down the slide, slides out the bottom, uh, she slides right over those rocks and just screams out in pain, right? Because her legs are just, they just get scratched up by all this gravel. And she's just, ah! And right in that moment, I leap out and I throw my two handfuls of rocks directly at her face. And so they start, you know, pelting her and like, oh, going down her throat. And she's just getting hit with all these rocks and all these little sharp little pieces of gravel are, you know, hitting her. And so she cries out even more. She's like, oh, you know, and she's trying to brush it off and shake it off. And, and she's suddenly standing and, and right there, like in this pain, crying, weeping. And I'm just off to the side, like, <laughs> you know, just, just so proud of my accomplishment uh, of being evil. And all of a sudden... In that moment, she turns to me, she kind of wipes tears out of her eyes. She goes, Jacob, because Jacob, you hurt me, right? You, you hit me with these rocks and my legs are scratched and it hurts. Jacob, I am going to tell the teacher, right? Which suddenly I'm like, oh, whoa, <laughs> 
let's pump the brakes. You know, like, let's, let's slow this down. Like, well, let's not pull this train out of the station quite yet, Amanda. And so I, I suddenly am scrambling mentally, and I try to tell her, I was like, well, here, you know, here, here's, uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing, Amanda. The thing is, is that when you yelled, when you screamed out, uh, you screamed so loudly that it hurt my ears. And so I might have to go tell the teacher on you for hurting my ears with your scream of pain. And suddenly in that moment, we found ourselves at an impasse. Because Amanda starts using her five-year-old logic and thinks, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. And so suddenly (laughs) we're at a standoff and we're kind of locking eyes and we both decide in that moment, okay, well, I guess neither of us are going to tell the teacher on the other person. And then we slowly backed away. And that was the end of that. And all of a sudden, we moved out of that situation, and everyone in my grade learned to fear me just a little bit more. Right? Why? Because I was a deeply broken, manipulative five-year-old. Right? Like There was something intrinsically very wrong with my train of thought to get myself into that point, to manipulate this girl into that point. And the reality is that, man, I was, I was broken as a five-year-old. I, I was broken as a 15-year-old. I was broken as a 25-year-old. The reality is that I am still a deeply broken person. The reality is that, man, I've fallen into lying, right? I've cheated and I've stolen and, and I've, I've fallen into addiction and, and pride and, and lust and selfishness. The reality is that, man, I, I sin and I fail and, and sometimes I'm, I'm not a good husband. The reality is that sometimes I fail as a friend. Sometimes I fail in my position as a minister of the gospel. The reality is that I am a deeply broken person, so the question should be, then why am I on this stage? Why am I here? Why am I in this position? What did I do to receive this position to explain Scripture and guide our college students towards the Lord? Why am I where I am? I mean, the reality is that we're all broken on some level. The reality is that we've all failed in some area. And yet we still find ourselves in positions to lead within our workplace or within our organization or within our family or within our friendships. We still find ourselves in that position to give advice or or to steer people and, and guide people. And why? What did we do to receive those positions? What did we do to find ourselves in this position this morning where we're sitting in a room designed to help us understand a little bit more about God? Why are we in this position to seek after or even claim to have a relationship, a personal relationship with the God of the universe? What did we do for that? Why are we where we are? And as we look at the reign of Solomon, what we're going to wind up asking ourselves at the end of seeing how he was the greatest king of all time, that he was given such incredible wealth and wisdom and power. And we're going to ask ourselves at the end of his life, why Solomon? Why was he in the position that he had? What did he do to deserve the gifts that God gave him? And when we find the answer to that question, it's going to help us understand not only his position, but it's going to help us understand our position as well. 
So this whole morning, man, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, if there's one near you, uh, if you want to pull it up in your phone, 1 Kings chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And just to give you some background, uh, basically, uh, we're going to be talking about Solomon. But in order to understand his predicament, we look back at his father, a guy named David, King David of Israel, first really great king of Israel. And basically, the way that David became king uh, was he was just sort of chilling in Israel at one point, And a prophet showed up in his life, and the prophet said, hey, you're going to be king. And David said, cool. Uh, but then the current king at that time, Saul, said, not cool. And so he decided to try to murder David multiple times. Uh, but he failed. And so then David became king. And he reigned for a number of years. He did some good stuff. He did some, you know, not good stuff, but that's all right. And so he winds up at this point uh, where he's old and dying. Okay, that's what happens to all of us. Uh, spoiler alert. So, uh, so he's at this point where he's old, he's dying, and he's not going to be king anymore, right? When you die, you have to pass it on. So the question on everyone's mind is, who's going to be king? And that's where 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5 kicks off, where we see a guy named Adonijah, who's the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So we find that this guy named Adonijah, he's one of David's sons by way of the wife Haggith. And he decides... I will be king. And so because of that, he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father, David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. So basically, we see Adonijah see the gap that's being created. He sees the the need for a new king. And so he steps up, and he says, I will take the heavy crown of my father, and accept this royal responsibility. So he steps up. He says, I'm going to walk into this place and be the next king. And it's not that David is like, yay, but David never says no. David never confronts him about it. And this is an issue because years before this, David had made a promise to another wife of his, Bathsheba. He made a promise to her. He says, I'm going to make your son king her son was named Solomon. She says, I'm going to make Solomon the king, the next king of Israel. So Bathsheba hears about Adonijah. She goes to David. She's like, listen, this isn't going to work. Like, this isn't right. And she brings even the prophet of the Lord at that time, a guy named Nathan, who comes in at the exact same moment. And they both tell David, look, you, you can't do that. Like, Adonijah can't be king. You promised it would be Solomon. And so David's like, oh, my bad. And so he calls in Solomon and makes him king. He like performs the rituals, does all this stuff. Suddenly, boom, Solomon is now king, which then leaves Adonijah kind of in an awkward spot, right? Which then reveals to us, I think, the greatest awkward ending to a party in all of scripture, uh, maybe the only one. And it's in verse 49, where all the guests of this king party that Adonijah was throwing for himself trembled and rose and each went his own way. Right? Why? Because they suddenly realized in that moment, oh, Solomon is king now. We're committing treason. I'm just going to go. Right? They just, they kind of, uh, they get out of there. And Adonijah himself is also terrified. And so he's like, oh my gosh, like, we're committing treason. This is really bad. And so he goes to Solomon immediately. He goes, hey, hey man, I, you know, let's just, let's just pretend it never happened. And Solomon says, hey, it's totally cool. Don't worry about it. He says, just don't do anything crazy. Don't do anything foolish in the coming years and you'll be fine. Unfortunately, Adonijah goes out, does some foolish stuff, and Solomon gets some murdered. Um, but don't worry about that. It just, that's the way it went. So Adonijah, he's gone. And so Solomon is now king. And so Solomon has now risen to power. Uh, he is the authority over all of Israel. 
He's inheriting this huge kingdom from his dad, his dad who was beloved by all the people. And Solomon is suddenly in power. It's a place that he didn't expect to be, right? He never stood up and said, I will be king. Instead, he's just sort of thrown into it. And so he's a little unsure of himself. And so in this moment, as he's unsure, the Lord comes to him in a dream. And the Lord begins to talk to him and says, you know, what's, what's going on? How are you feeling? And Solomon's like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. And God says, okay, well, I'll tell you what. I will give you a gift. I will give you a gift. I will equip you in any way you want. He says, what can I give you? What can I do for you, Solomon? In this moment, you are my chosen king. What can I do for you? And so Solomon responds to the Lord in chapter 3 of 1 Kings. And he says, oh, Lord, my God. You have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon says, look, what I really need from you, God, in this moment, what I really, really need is an understanding mind, is wisdom. He doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for wealth. He asks for wisdom because he's basically asking the Lord uh, for something that would make him better at his current job. This is the football coach asking for a louder whistle. This is the accountant asking for a bigger calculator or the newest Excel or whatever it is. Like this is someone asking for something that makes them better at their current role. Solomon says, all I want to do is what you've told me to do better. And so the Lord hears this request and he's so pleased by it. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And so the Lord said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I will now do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you, none like you shall arise after you. I will give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. God is so pleased with Solomon's request. So pleased with Solomon's humility, his willingness to work and, and fulfill the purpose that God has given him. God says, I'm going to just take this blessing to that like Oprah level of abundance. He says, I'm going to give you not only what you asked, I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for. I'm going to bless you to the point where there will be no one like you ever. No one before you, Solomon, no one after you. No one will ever compare. And man, this is, this is held up. This is a promise that has not been broken. We have seen this in our history where Solomon truly was the greatest king, the most influential, powerful ruler the world has ever seen. We see the Lord give him all of these things, and it plays out beautifully, as we'll see here in a moment. But God says all of these blisses, right? He promises all this riches, and then he gives him one little stipulation, one little amendment. He says, but if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God says, I'm going to give you all these things. I'm going to pour out all these gifts and heap them upon you. And here's the thing, Solomon. All I ask, I just want you to walk the way I want you to walk. I want you to walk in my ways. Keep my commandments. 
If you do so, man, this will keep on going. I'm going to lengthen your days. This is going to be a beautiful relationship, Solomon. Just stay on track. And Solomon says, absolutely. Game on. Let's do this. And so the Lord begins to bless him. We see in chapter 4 that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute, and they served Solomon all the days of his life. This is basically Solomon expanding the borders of Israel. Right? When we're seeing these, these outlines, we're basically what we're being told is that Solomon is expanding Israel's borders in every possible direction. This is Rick Perry going on TV tonight and telling us, Louisiana, Oklahoma, all Texas. Right? Yeah! yippee Kaye, Right? We'd be so happy and pumped up. Why? Because everyone wants to see that growth, right? You want to see that kind of expansion. And that's what Solomon is given uh, by the Lord for the sake of Israel. He's expanding their borders. And what's wild is he does it all without even firing a shot. He does it all without a war. Instead, he's just moving and shaking. His dad before him, David, was the warrior king. Right? The first king, Saul, was the fool king, the foolish king. Suddenly we had David, the warrior king. And now we have Solomon, the wise king. The one who rose to power and expanded the borders just through sheer diplomacy, through words. And suddenly people seeing him and seeing his wisdom and his power and his might, and they just want to give him things. They want to give him tributes. We are seeing that the, even though he's expanding the borders, the other nations around him, they don't get scared. They're not like intimidated and feel like they need to push back. Instead, they are so impressed with Solomon, even though he's not ruling over them, they are bringing him tribute. They are sending him gifts of gold, of precious metals, precious stones, fabrics, spices, animals. They're sending him all of these amazing things because they just see how great he is. (laughs) In a supernatural way, they have caught a glimpse of who Solomon is, how he's been blessed by the Lord. And so they're like, man, just take this stuff. It's amazing. The power that he is suddenly wielding. God doesn't only give him this power, he gives him wisdom. We find out that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,000 and five. Super exact. I love that. All right, so we find out that he reigns for about 40 years. And so if we do the math over that 40 years, he's writing over 4,000 little tidbits, like beautiful works of literature or poetry or, or songs or wisdom. And as he's writing these things, you do the math, you find out he's writing one proverb or song, one every three days for his entire 40-year reign. Right? Compared with like our one good Facebook post, like ever, right? The one that our grandma's like, yeah, you know, like that's the one that we get. He's writing one every three days. Every three days, Solomon is just putting out this wisdom and this beauty. And people are seeing it and they're receiving it. And man, they are so impressed by it. Solomon don't, not only has this power, though, and this wisdom, the Lord gives him incredible wealth. We find out that the king, Solomon, made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. He made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You're like, the Shephelah seed? No way. Shephelah sycamore, Yeah. Shephelah sycamore, right? What, what is it saying? He's telling us that, man, cedar, it was a valuable wood. It was a special wood. It was rare. It was hard to come by. So it was very, very valuable. And he makes it plentiful. We find out silver, a precious metal that was used as their currency. It was a higher form of currency back then. It was as common as stone. 
the Israelites of that day would look at your really awesome James Avery, you know, pendant, and they'd be like, eh, whatever, because it's silver. And they're, they're not impressed. They're so rich. They're so wealthy. They're so affluent. We're seeing suddenly in Israel just this incredible wealth that's never been seen before, never been seen since. The richest man in America right now, Bill Gates. 21 years running, just looked it up. Good for that guy. $81 billion, okay? Net worth, $81 billion. B, B, Beyonce, B, okay? Billion. (laughs) He could, Bill Gates, just to put that in perspective, $81 billion. That means that he could walk out onto his front lawn and he could just put out a million dollars cash, okay? A million dollars. And he could just light it on fire. And he could do that every day for 222 years. That's what Bill Gates could do with $81 billion. He probably won't, right? It'd be hilarious if he did, but he probably won't. Solomon, just to give you perspective, Solomon blows that out of the water. We, we are trying, scholars have spent years and years trying to understand, like trying to really calculate, like, okay, how much was he really worth? How much money did he have? Uh, and it's, it's literally, it's impossible. It is impossible for us to calculate, like our calculators, they end. There's, it's too many numbers. And we get to the point where we're like, okay, well, let's just try to break down little parts of his wealth. Maybe we can understand those. When, when people are giving him tributes, right? Remember those other rulers are giving him tributes of oils and spices and, and metals and stones. Uh, they're sending him, one of the things we know that they sent him was gold. Okay, so just, just tribute gold. Only Gold that was given by these outside people, not to mention the other gifts that they're giving him, not to mention just the wealth that he accumulates for himself in the country that he's mining and all that stuff. Just the gold that other kings give him amounted to, in our current value, about $1.1 billion a year. That's just the gold that people gave him. Just like the Hallmark cards he would get. Oh, there you go. And find the little gold. That's $1.1 billion annually. Solomon's wealth was in incredible. And so he got all these gifts and he says, I got to do something. I got to do something with all this stuff. And so he tells the Lord, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. And the Lord says, okay, well, here's some guidelines. And Solomon goes with it. And so the, Solomon uh, rounds up 200,000 workers. Okay. So college station times two, they are now 200,000 workers and they are all dedicated to building this temple. And they take seven years to do it. Seven years spent building this temple for the Lord. Solomon was so pleased by it. It was so amazing and impressive at the end that he got the overseer, the, basically his general contractor, grabs a general contractor and pays him 20 cities. Okay. Cities that like, people live in. <laughs> Solomon says, here's the Brazos Valley. Thanks for the building. Like That's what he does. <laughs> cities is what he pays the guy in. And suddenly we see, man, that Solomon, he's taken these gifts and he's used them to glorify the Lord. And it's a beautiful thing. And all these people are amazed at Solomon, but they're not only amazed at Solomon, they're amazed at Solomon's God. And that is the point, right? That that was the purpose behind all these gifts the Lord had given him. It's a beautiful moment. And yet in that moment, in that position, as we see Solomon rise this incredible spot, we see a storm begin to form. On the horizon, we begin to see Solomon just kind of push of a few rules here and there, kind of toe the line uh, on different commands that the Lord had given him. The Lord told all the kings of Israel, you don't need a big standing army. Unnecessary. I am your army. You don't need one. And Solomon starts to build an army. 
Right? It's not the biggest army in the world, but he starts building one. He's like, well, you know, just, just sort of in case. God told uh, the, all the kings of Israel, he told all the people of Israel, do not marry foreign people. Do not marry foreign men. Do not fer- marry foreign women. Why? Because they worship other gods. It's not that they're inferior in some ways, but it's because they are misguided. They are worshiping other gods, false gods. So don't marry those people or they will try to turn you away from me, the, the true God. But Solomon, his very first marriage is to an Egyptian. He marries the Pharaoh's daughter because he's seeking to build an alliance with Egypt. So suddenly he's starting to twist these things and, and suddenly we find him not only spending seven years building God's temple, right? That, that's a beautiful, amazing thing. Seven years building God's temple. Solomon then spends 13 years building his own house, building his own palace. 200,000 workers. 13 years. Almost double what was spent on the Lord's house was spent on Solomon's house. And suddenly we're beginning to see uh, some cracks begin to form. Right? Suddenly we begin to see there's some issues that could rise up and, and become even greater down the road. And the Lord sees this and the Lord goes to Solomon. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon, right? So the second time the Lord has come to Solomon, and he tells him, hey, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, in other words, this temple that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God's saying, Solomon, I want to affirm what you've been doing. There are some amazing, wonderful things that are taking place in this kingdom. And for you, as for you, Solomon, here's a reminder. If you will walk before me, as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Right? So God steps into this moment. He sees that problem and he says, Solomon, let me just remind you of your calling. Let me just give you a friendly reminder. I'm going to even elaborate a little bit on what I'm calling you to do, of the purpose that I'm putting you towards. Look, I want, I want you to walk before me. I want you to walk with integrity keeping my commands, keeping my statutes. Solomon, that's, that's my desire for you. That's what I'm calling you to do. And, and Solomon, here's the thing. Not only am I going to remind you of the calling that I've given you, I'm going to remind you of the consequences for your failure. Because if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but if you go and you serve other gods, if you worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins, and everyone passing by will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. God is reminding Solomon of his calling. He's reminding him of these consequences if he fails. He says, Solomon, if you stray, if you don't walk in these ways, man, I'm going to have to discipline you. So I don't have to punish you. And Solomon, it's not just you who will suffer. He says, Solomon, if you stray, if you wander, the entire nation will suffer. He says, all these people that love you, 
that cry out your name in the streets, that praise you and your wealth and your wisdom and your power, all of those people, Solomon, all of those people will be stripped from their homes, stripped from their land. They will be destroyed. Solomon, do not become a byword. Do not become a proverb. Do not become this cautionary tale to the nations around you of what happens to people when they abandon me. Solomon, don't do that. Please, please, please don't do that. And yet, what does Solomon do? Exactly that. (laughs) Solomon hears the warning, and he just keeps on keeping on. And he increases his power and his armies even more. He doesn't just marry that one foreign wife. We find out uh, the Bible literally tells us that he does not withhold his passion for foreign women until he accumulates for himself 700 wives and 300 concubines. In other words, a thousand women that Solomon objectifies into sexual objects that just serve him. Suddenly we see Solomon allow all of these gifts that the Lord has given him. He allows them to become his new gods. He starts worshiping other things. He finds the gods that those wives have. He hears about their false idols, their, their dead deities, and he says, yeah, I want to worship them too. And so he starts to make offerings and sacrifices to foreign idols. He starts building temples. He starts building other temples to these false, fake, dead gods. And suddenly we see Solomon fall hard to the point where God steps in in chapter 11 and he appears to Solomon a third time. And he says, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. God says, I warned you, I cautioned you over and over again, Solomon, and I keep my promises. You have strayed, you have wandered, and I will rip this kingdom away. But for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. God says, Solomon, I'm going to destroy Israel now. I promised And it's going to happen because I keep my promises. But Solomon, here's the thing. Even in the midst of that promise, I'm going to tweak it just a little bit for the sake of giving grace. Solomon, even in the midst of that punishment, I'm going to be a little merciful. And so when I do this, when I bring this destruction about, it's not going to be in your days. It's going to instead occur to your son, which is a bummer for the son. But oh well. So suddenly Solomon knows, man, I strayed too far. And sure enough, even though he doesn't get ripped out of power during his span, there are more enemies. There is more problem. There's more dissension in the kingdom. Uh, One guy raises up uh, named Hadad, flees to Egypt, uh, fights Solomon from Egypt all of his days. See another guy flee to Syria, exact same thing, fight Solomon all of his days. We see my favorite guy, a guy named Jeroboam, uh, raised up by the Lord. Every single one of these guys are raised up by God. Jeroboam is raised up. He's just a random Israelite kid walking down the street. And all of a sudden, a prophet pops up in his life. And the prophet says, you're going to be king. And then the prophet takes off his shirt and rips it into 10 pieces and says, see? And then he's gone. Okay, and that's the whole, it's amazing. And so the prophet's gone. Jeroboam's like, 
cool. But Solomon, the current king, says, not cool. And he tries to murder Jeroboam over and over and over again. And suddenly we find ourselves where we were with Solomon's dad. Suddenly we find ourselves with Solomon the wise acting exactly like Saul the fool who saw the Lord's will, saw the power that was going to escape from his hands and tried his best to fight against the Lord's will, and and he couldn't. Suddenly Solomon is the one chasing this little Israelite kid through the desert trying to murder him. The wise has become foolish. And Solomon himself sees this at some point. And he tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, he writes that anyone trying to grab after that power, trying to hold on to that wealth or that influence, he, he describes it as a man trying to grab the wind. He says it's pointless and it's futile and it's vanity. So suddenly Solomon falls. Man, And what's incredible about this is that the Lord knew The Lord knew that Solomon would fail. The Lord knew that he would have to bring the hammer of discipline on Solomon. So why, why did God give him the position in the first place? Why did God not only give him the position, but leave him in the position until the day he dies? Why did he give him that grace? Why was Solomon in that spot? What did he do to deserve it? And man, the reality is, the truth is that our disobedience is just as great. We look at Solomon, we're like, oh, that's terrible. But we do the exact same thing. We're just better at hiding it. The reality is that we all seek to increase our own power. Maybe we don't have that pedestal to form armies, but we accumulate our own wealth or influence, and we try to bring these things in that make us feel more comfortable. And we manipulate people, and we, we work between lines, and we kind of, you know, make a few, we kind of give ourselves a little bit of grace, a little bit of wiggle room, and, and suddenly we, we bend the rules to, to increase what? Our own power, our own influence. The reality is that we objectify men and women in our media, in our pornography, and suddenly we find ourselves turning people into sexual objects. And a lot of times, man, those numbers get up to the thousands, just like Solomon. The truth is that we find ourselves worshiping those false idols, those dead deities of wealth or or influence or academia or or status or relationships or moralism. Suddenly we find ourselves just as broken, just as fallen, just as messed up as Solomon. So why are we still here? Why was Solomon where he was? Because before he was even born, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's speaking to David, his father. And God told David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when that moment in 1 Kings chapter 1 comes around, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promises David, your son is going to reign. Your son is going to build my temple, and I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. God promises your son is going to mess up, and I'm going to have to discipline him. That's going to happen, David, but the reality is that your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Why was Solomon where he was? Why was Solomon in the position that he was given? Why, what did he do to achieve that height, 
Our answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Instead, what we find is that Solomon was where he was. He had that position only because God chose to put him there. Because God chose to use a broken person for his purpose. Because when we look in our history, when we look in our scripture, we see that our God always works in that way. That our God loves to use broken people for his purpose. Our God doesn't uh, go around using people unless they're broken. Instead, we find that our God uses people because they're broken. Because our God is most glorified when he uses broken vessels to accomplish his purposes. Our brokenness exemplifies, it, it, it amplifies his beauty. That's why when we look in our scripture, we see that God used prostitutes like Rahab. He used murderers like King David. He used adulterers like King Solomon. And he used all those people to line up a lineage that led to Jesus Christ. He stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live that perfect life that we could not live, to die that death that we deserved, to rise again, showing his power and authority over sin and death that had up to that point kept us captive so that any who would call on the name of Christ could be saved, so that anyone who puts their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins would no longer find any condemnation in and of themselves. God used these broken people to accomplish his purpose. I mean, that's why we're here. Because God has chosen to use us. Because he was being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. Even when we were still deeply, deeply broken, Christ died for us. We have the opportunity to be made alive. And so when we enter into that relationship. It's not something that people look at and they're like, wow, he did a really great job. They look at it and they say, wow, his God is amazing because God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God raises us up and puts us into the positions that we have because there's no better demonstration of how great he is, of how gracious he is, where people can look at us where we are, and they don't see someone perfect, but they do see someone that's being used by God. And they don't think, wow, that guy is amazing. That girl, oh, she's amazing. They don't think that. Instead, they think, that person's God is incredible. That's why we're here. Not to be perfect, but to be reflections of the grace of God. Why am I here on this stage? as a deeply broken person. I'll tell you, it's because the Holy Spirit chose to convict me of my sin in Mrs. Brown's K-4 classroom. Showed me that I was a sinner, that there was no solution to that sin unless I put my trust in Jesus Christ. That was the only way to have eternal life. The greatest gift, greater than even being the greatest king. Eternal life offered to me. I'm here because the Holy Spirit chose to grab a hold of my heart and convict me when I was in later high school to show me that I was walking on a path that was headed for destruction. And turned me around, showed me the path towards life. I'm here because before my freshman year at Texas A&M, I went to Impact. And at that camp, the Lord, the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of my heart, grabbed a hold of my future, my mind, my plans. And he jumbled them all up. And he called me out of the the track that I was headed on. And he called me into full-time vocational ministry. 
I'm here because God has chosen to use me for his purpose. And I am just grateful, thankful for that opportunity. So my question to you is, what are you being called into? What is the purpose that God has put in front of you? Where are you called to be a reflection of his grace, a proclaimer of his gospel in your family, in your friendships, in your workplace, in your school? Where is that happening? Where is God trying to push you and move you? Where is God offering you an opportunity to reflect how amazing he is? Not through your perfection, but through your willingness to be on board with his plan, despite how broken, despite how many times you fail. Where can you do that? Where, what position should you be thankful for right now? Let's go before the Lord and ask him. God, we we thank you that you have given us each a unique situation. God, unique relationships, Lord, unique uh, jobs, Lord, unique uh, majors, whatever it is. God, we thank you that you have put us in a place on purpose, Lord, with a plan. If you would, take a moment, just ask the Lord right now to show you where, where is he calling you to be a reflection of grace, of the gospel. Ask the Lord to maybe show you a relationship or, or a, a work environment or, or whatever it is. Ask the Lord to show you where could you be better demonstrating his grace and his forgiveness, his, his ability to use brokenness. Ask him to show you that right now. And if you would take a moment, uh, just one more moment, and and ask the Lord to maybe show you what's the practical step you can take this week towards that. Uh, Who's the friend you can talk to to keep you accountable? Uh, What conversation needs to happen with your husband or with your wife to to make that thing happen in, in your family? Ask the Lord to show you What's the next step that you can take this week to move towards accomplishing his purpose of glorifying him, glorifying his grace, his his mercy, his gospel? Ask him to show you how can you move towards that this week? God, we are we are thankful in this season. God, I hope we're thankful outside of the season. Lord, as we approach the birth of Jesus Christ, Lord, the greatest gift you've ever shown us, Lord. Let us just marvel at that gift, Lord. Let us proclaim the truth, the beauty of that gift. God, let us realize that even in our brokenness, even in our failure, that you are good, that you still choose to use us. Lord, let us just see that purpose. Let us run towards it, empowered by your spirit as best we can. Lord, we pray all these things according to your will. Amen. All right, well, we love you guys, and we will see you in a week.